0: All right, I'll spend the first few minutes just kind of giving you a little introduction and tell you kind of the plan, uh, the, the schedule for the Bible study this year. But let's begin with prayer. Dear Father, just ask that you would come close to each person here just now. Um, our desire during this Bible study in this year is to see you more clearly, understand what you're like. And uh, today as we go through the Old Testament, certainly we all have a lot of questions. Uh, please uh, help us to see you more in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so we're going to talk about... Uh, we've been spent three years going through the Old Testament, and I know for the first-year students, um, I just thought, well, we should pay tribute and at least say have one Bible study in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament right now, but let me just tell you kind of where we're at. Um, my wife and I started doing a Bible study with medical students back in 2003, and I've had a chance to make several trips through um we always did it in two years, but uh, starting in 2009, um, just, I don't know, for my own interest, I wanted to do maybe a little more detailed Bible study. So we've been going at a slower pace, um, but uh, probably none of you were here for this trip. Starting in 2009, we went from Genesis to Deuteronomy and did the book of Job. And in 2010-11, we went from 1 Samuel to Isaiah and the second-year students who were here uh may remember last year we finished off the Old Testament and had some Bible studies in the Gospel of John. Okay, so for this year, the plan is we're going to just have one lecture, and this is just going to be kind of a, a hurricane approach to go through the Old Testament, okay? as a very big picture, some basic points, and since for the second year students, you know, you weren't here for all the way up through Isaiah, I'm going to maybe concentrate on those uh, earlier sections in the Old Testament, Okay, and then we'll spend most of the year, I think, on the Gospels this year, kind of going chronologically through the life of Jesus and the four Gospels. And then I would like to uh, spend some time uh, towards the last half of the year in the book of Revelation. Okay, So that's kind of the plan. And uh, maybe just here at the beginning I can get a little feedback uh, from all of you. I have my own list, which I'll show you here in just a minute. But I want you to think about and uh, maybe just have you share with me What would you say is, if we're making a top ten list, top things that turn people off about God, if you're going to invite someone to church or talk about God or just things that have completely hardened people to feel that even the concept of God is uh, ridiculous. Maybe just share with me. What? Yes? Okay, we can't actually see him. Okay, that would be one point. Yes? He doesn't seem fair. fair. Okay, and how do you think uh, maybe people get... That impression. Um, Just how there's so much poverty in the world and how we're here blessed, but there's some people that... Yeah, excellent. I don't know how many of you heard that, but just the disparity. I mean, the the starving children in Africa and just how does that work? Yes? His followers don't reflect him very well sometimes. Okay, very, very good point. His followers do not sometimes uh, represent him correctly. Yes? Are there parts in the Bible where God is directly saying, kill them, their wives, and their children? Yeah, God's own commands in the Old Testament to wipe out entire villages, and not just the fighting men, but the women, the children, the babies. Um, This is one of those questions. uh, When we did the book of Joshua, we spent a whole hour talking about that. Um, We're not going to talk about it today, but I I just want to recognize that's a very important issue that that sometime we'll have to talk about. Any others? Okay, yes? Uh, it seems like he's more focused on uh, unnecessary rituals and details. Okay, the perception that uh, maybe God is focused on a, a list of rules and details that maybe seem somewhat arbitrary. Okay, uh, yes, another uh, very good point. Okay, here's my list. Okay, this is not necessarily correct, but this is just my perception in talking with people and especially with patients. Uh, human suffering, you know, we, we say that um, God is all-powerful. We have a verse in the Bible, God is love. And so it, it is difficult to wrap your mind around, especially if you are the one who's had a loved one or some tragedy in your life, to reconcile a God who is all-powerful and the horrible human suffering that we see. Um, my impression is that that's probably right at the top of the list. Um, We've talked about this a lot in the Old Testament. We went through the book of Job, Jeremiah, and it'll definitely come up here as we go through the the New Testament. Um, The other which was touched on are the the scary images of God, uh, especially from the Old Testament. This is going to kind of be our subject today as a big uh, overview. Uh, I know this was terrifying to me for a time in my life when I was 12 or 13, Um, and many people, it's it's difficult. And I think uh, for all of us, there are certain stories in the Bible that are just uh, really stretch our minds to reconcile that God that's described in this story of the Old Testament. And then God comes in human form and we don't see him killing anyone or doing some of those things. That can be difficult. And someone mentioned a very good point, God's people here that I put in quotes. And uh, just one quote here from Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. And so very often God's people, not just Christians, Jews in the Old Testament, God's followers have so misrepresented him that for someone who maybe is considering to be a Christian, well, if a Christian is like that, then I'm not really interested. So I think that's a big issue. There are many others that that could be listed, but we're going to focus on this one uh, for the next uh, 40 minutes or so. So our question is God's faithfulness in the Old Testament, and the verse. Uh, well, I have to. I have to list some. I have lots of. Uh, I collect quotes about things people have said about the God of the Old Testament. And these are the two I always like to read whenever we discuss this in a Bible study. One is by Mark Twain. Mark Twain had some things, good things to say about Jesus. He kind of seemed to admire Jesus, but he found nothing to admire about God in the Old Testament. And he said, "To trust the God of the Bible is to trust an irascible, vindictive, fierce, and ever fickle and changeful master." Okay, and a a more colorful quote. Uh, All of you know Richard Dawkins or heard of him. Okay, now this is uh, quite an amazing um, thing that he had to say about the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal. I have to leave some out there, dot, dot, dot. Pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malvolent bully. Okay? So, um, very strong impression about the God of the Old Testament. Is there something positive that can be said in response. How would you respond to Richard Dawkins? You're on a plane flight or something like that. Um, Well, that's our subject. We're going to use this verse as kind of a takeoff point to discuss the God of the Old Testament. This is in Romans 3. And Paul would say, talking about the Jews, well, what if some were unfaithful? Okay, Were some of them unfaithful in the Old Testament? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And his response was, not at all. So what we're going to do is, in just a very rapid fire, we're going to go through a lot of Old Testament stories. And what we're going to do is we're going to contrast, and I think we can only understand, begin to understand the God of the Old Testament as in any way being consistent with Jesus Christ if we see the unfaithfulness and what God is dealing with. And then we contrast that. Do we see God's faithfulness in the Old Testament? Okay, so uh, let's maybe pick up with the flood. Okay, certainly we see our unfaithfulness. And I'm going to lump us in here. Um, you know, we're talking about the Jews, but you know, we need to remember Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were all Jews. Uh, when Daniel gave his prayer and he said to God how sorry he was, he lumped himself in with everything bad. We have sinned. We have done this. So we're going to call this our unfaithfulness. And so in Genesis six, God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil so you could tell I'm reading from a very loose paraphrase here, but it says basically this in any translation they thought evil from morning to night. God was sorry that he'd made the human race in the first place, it broke his heart. Okay. Can we see uh, any of God's faithfulness in the story of the flood? Well, I'm going to try to make a case for that uh, very briefly. There just some clues here in Genesis 6 about Noah, that he had no faults and was the only good man of his time. He lived in fellowship with God, but everyone else was evil in God's sight, and violence had spread everywhere. So just a question, uh, do you believe it's true that Noah was the only good person? Was he the only one in that time who was God's trusting friend? It's repeated later on when God said to Noah, Go into the boat with your whole family, I have found that you are the only one in all the world who does what is right. Uh would it matter if God was down to just one person, one family? And I think maybe one case that can be made that God really was down to basically nothing left, no connection with our planet, is that uh, you know what, if he had three thousand, five thousand trusting, loyal friends During this time, uh, you know, wouldn't it, you know, built several boats? Isn't it just the fact that one man and his family got on the boat? Wouldn't that suggest that certainly the message was heard, that no one believed it, and that God really was down to basically nothing left on this planet? So just a question to think about. Let's say there was no flood, and Noah dies, and we go a century. Two centuries and God has completely lost contact with planet Earth. He doesn't have one person who trusts him. Um, Would that naturally result in kind of a chaotic circumstance? If God has no one, okay, would how would things unfold? And I think you could make a case that, you know, God had to intervene at this point because he's down to one person. And all hell's gonna break loose unless God rescues that one person. So could we even describe something as horrible as the flood as a rescue mission? Save the last man and his family. Uh, Would the avenue for the Messiah, the coming Messiah, have been possible had God completely lost contact with uh, the human race? So maybe can we put God uh, even see where the the flood was something uh, that was necessary uh, to save? Uh Much more to say about that. I'm just going to kind of make some some broad points as we go through. Now, moving on to Abraham. It's surprising where we find things about people like Abraham. This is Joshua's speech. And this is, I think, a shocking verse. Uh, at least, this was not my conception of Abraham and his family. I would imagine that there was Noah and then there was a very faithful line all the way down to Abraham. Uh, but this is what Joshua told the people. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Long ago your ancestors, Terah, and his sons Abraham and Nahor lived on the other side of the Euphrates River. Okay, What were they doing over there? And served other gods. Okay, So he Abraham and his family serving other gods. And of course, God looks good here because he called out to Abraham. But I took your ancestor Abraham from the other side of the Euphrates River. I led him. And we know all the good things that God did for Abraham. Okay, so we see God continuing to work with very rebellious people who keep falling away. But this story, the story of Abraham, um, you know, when you really read through it, um, it's, it's quite surprising. Of course, we know God gave Abraham a promise that he would have a son, but Abraham and his wife began to doubt, and Abraham's wife Sarah had not borne him any children. But she had an Egyptian slave woman named Hagar. And so she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Why don't you sleep with my slave? Perhaps she can have a child for me. Abram agreed with what Sarah said. So she gave Hagar to him to be his concubine. This happened after Abraham, uh, Abraham had lived in Canaan for 10 years. So nothing seems to be happening. Abram had intercourse with Hagar. She became pregnant. And when she found out that she was pregnant, she became proud and despised Sarah. And I'll leave out the story, but just remember the the incredible feud between Hagar and Sarah, and that this was really this was not a healthy home in this time. A lot of jealousy. Twice, you know, just imagine Abram having to send out um, Hagar and the child out into the desert. Okay, but can we see God's faithfulness? And even though Abraham is not doing the ideal. That as this boy is just sent out into the desert, God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him for I will make a great nation from his descendants. And so this is, this is kind of the, the theme I'm pursuing here. We, we see the human race continually messing up, continually not trusting, making bad decisions, and we see God keep jumping in as a rescue. Okay, this was not the plan, but God's going to make of this son a great nation. We see unfaithfulness in just every family line as you go down. Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, Isaac preferred Esau because he enjoyed eating animals. Esau killed, but Rebekah preferred Jacob. The, the homes are dysfunctional. Okay, We have one child being lifted up and, and you can just imagine the problems that result from that. We read that Esau married two Hittite women and that they made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. Just the name Jacob, which means heel grabber, or to deceive, or deceiver. And we don't have time to list all of the deceptive things that uh, Jacob did. But you know, these, these are the children of Abraham. And probably the most famous story is how he deceived Isaac into thinking he was Esau, and he got the blessing. And of course, he has to flee. And so again, we see, I think, God's faithfulness and even this situation did something that wasn't right and God meets him and of course we have the stairway to heaven and there was the Lord standing beside him. Okay, So we see God uh, it, continuing to work with these people even though they're not really doing what, what his plan was at all. But tell me what you think about Jacob's prayer. I mean, imagine you just had the stairway to heaven and there's God and this is Jacob's prayer after that. Then Jacob made a vow to the Lord. If you will be with me and protect me on the journey I am making and give me food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then you will be my God. Uh, any of you pray this about medical school? You know? <laughs> God, if I get into medical school, if I pass all my classes, if I get into the residency of my choice, then... You will be my God. It's it's not a prayer of of great faith. Um, now I'm leaving out. Jacob gave a great prayer later on, after he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and and so we could say some good things about Jacob. But here we see, you know, how God is stooping to meet someone who really is is spiritually, uh, we'd have to say rather immature. Okay, so you know how Jacob went out. He worked for his uh, uh, brother-in-law and all of the things that came out of that, not until the next morning. He's working for Rachel. Did Jacob discover that it was Leah? He'd been tricked. I should have read the King James here, which is more impressive. Behold, it was Leah. But um, (laughs) anyway, so he worked for Rachel. He had intercourse with Rachel and he loved her more than Leah. Again, we see kind of a a dysfunctional family coming out of this. Jacob deceived Laban uh, by not letting him know that he was leaving, so They escaped. And uh, this just kind of uh, uh, struck me as I was preparing this Bible study that uh, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel's saddlebag. And remember, Laban searched and couldn't find them. Um, you know, what is Rachel, wife of Jacob, doing with household gods? Okay, so we just see here, these these are not people that are devoted to God at this time. Okay, so Jacob has children. Okay, and they move out, and one of his children, Dinah, is raped. And I won't uh, read that whole story, but his sons want revenge. And so they tell the man that the man that raped her decided he wanted to marry her. Okay, so uh, um, Jacob's sons said to them, "Well, we cannot let our sister marry a man who's not circumcised. That would be a disgrace for us. We can only agree on condition that you become like us by circumcising all your males." And this was a trick. Okay, because three days later, when the men were still sore from their circumcision, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, brothers of Dinah, took their swords, went into the city without arousing suspicion, and killed all the men. Okay. Are you familiar with these stories in the Old Testament? And is it just kind of shocking to think that uh, you know, we read about, even in Revelation, the 12 tribes of Israel, and these men are mentioned, and the things that these people did are... Again, uh, shocking. Right? And I think if we're going to understand the God of the Old Testament, we need to understand the people of the Old Testament as well. But we just read on a chapter later, and we see God coming to Jacob, telling him, go to Bethel, live there, build an altar to me. And just the fact that I see God still in contact, still trying to help uh, those people, speaks to his faithfulness. Okay, well, it gets worse. Um, Jacob was living in the land. Reuben had sexual intercourse with Bilhah, one of his father's concubines. Jacob was furious. And Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. He made him a beautiful robe. And you remember, again, the jealousy and the things that were happening in the families at this time. So because of this, you remember his brothers threw him in a pit, sold him into Egypt. Okay, and we read about Judah and the things that he was up to. Of course, Jesus is in the line of Judah. and so. But did you know this about Judah? He married a Canaanite woman. And then he saw another woman who he didn't recognize. He thought that she was a prostitute because she had her face covered. He went over to her at the side of the road and said, all right, how much do you charge? And he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So three months later, someone told Judah Your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a whore and now she's pregnant. And Judah, of course, not connecting the dots here, said, take her out and burn her to death. Okay, Um, again, these are the people, 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what Judah, where he was at at this time. But of course, we know what happened to Joseph. Um, Joseph made a good impression on the Pharaoh. Of course, God blessed him. And then you remember that uh, he had this very emotional encounter uh, with his brothers, and they reconciled. <clears throat> and uh, this verse, which, again, this is this is the point I'm trying to make in this Bible study, that Joseph told his brothers, you plotted evil against me, but God turned it into good. That's what I see God doing again and again and again in the Old Testament. Uh, a lot of evil, and God is trying to turn it around, trying to make it into something good. And in this case, he did. Okay, we could fill pages and pages of the Exodus and how despite the the miraculous way God led them out of Egypt, the complaints all the way. uh, Just That's that's basically the whole story. You just read on. I'll just give you one verse example. Weren't there any graves in Egypt? Did you have to bring us out here in the desert to die? Look at what you've done by bringing us out of Egypt. So these complaints all the way out to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai... The things that God had to tell them not to do at Mount Sinai is kind of a reflection, I think, of what they were doing. Because you need to tell someone not to do something if, you know, they're not even, that's not on the radar screen. So we just read some of the shocking commands. Put to death any woman who practices magic. Where there's some people practicing magic. Uh, yes. Put to death anyone who has sexual relations with an animal. Condemn to death anyone who offers sacrifices to any god except me do not have sexual intercourse with any of your relatives do not disgrace your father by having intercourse with your mother you must not disgrace your own mother no man or woman is to have sexual relations with an animal that perversion makes you ritually unclean and so you know books like leviticus which um you know i remember years ago i could never stay awake through leviticus but i think if we're trying to really grapple in a serious way with what is god like uh, these verses actually are very important because they tell us these are the God people are trying to reach. Very hard-hearted people. So we have God, uh, His description coming to Mount Sinai, whatever that looked like. But it's it's terrifying. The description. Remember the people were shaking, they were afraid, and essentially they just pushed Moses forward and said, "You go." Okay. So this is one of the scary images of God in the Old Testament. But again, in the context of what we see happening at that time, maybe we can understand why this kind of a, of a display was necessary. And uh, we, we have a description of why it was necessary. God said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud and came in fire and lightning and all of that. For what reason? So that the people will hear me speaking with you and will believe you from now on. Because if you just had pushed Moses forward and then he went out there and he spent 40 days with God and came back, wouldn't that give Moses some authority? And maybe they would trust a little more in Moses and would stop rebelling so much Against Moses, okay. So again, I think we could see God coming to Sinai in this way for a reason—to try to stimulate some faith, some trust in Him and in Moses. And if we are tempted to think that maybe God overdid it, shouldn't have scared them so much. Uh, just remember that 40 days later they were dancing drunk around a golden calf. You know, so um, you know you would think if if God came and He shook this room and everything lit up. Um, you know, wouldn't we all go to church next week? Uh, wouldn't we? Uh, maybe we change some habits. Maybe it would last for longer than 40 days, but 40 days they're worshiping a golden calf. All right, so we have the 40 years of rebellion in the wilderness. Um, just one story after another. Korah's rebellion, all kinds of things. And uh, this verse um I have a special memory with this verse because years ago, my wife and I decided we're going to quickly read through the whole Bible. And when you've had a chance to just to quickly read through the Bible, when you come to entering the promised land, um, I mean, all you've been reading about is all this rebellion. And so this verse was, uh, I don't know, it was funny for us at the time, actually, in a sad way. But the people said to Joshua, we will do everything you have told us and we'll go anywhere you send us. We will obey you just as we always obeyed Moses. And you've just been reading about all the crazy stuff they've been doing. And so I I always wonder what Joshua's face looked like at that moment. But anyway, so God, they they went into the promised land and God said, I'm not bringing you in because you're any better than those people 40 years ago, but I'm bringing you in anyway. And so Joshua's final sermon, the end of his life, and he had to tell the people, get rid of the gods which your ancestors used to worship. So, And the people, of course, say, well, we would never leave the Lord to serve other gods. And just the fact he's having to tell them this would, would indicate he saw a pretty serious problem. The book of Judges. This is probably the darkest book in the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's rated R for violence, for sure. It begins, well, I'll, I'll just summarize uh, some of, after Joshua's death. That Joshua died, he was buried. That whole generation also died. The next generation forgot the Lord, what he'd done for Israel. The people settled down among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. They intermarried with them and worshiped their gods. Okay, so Judges opens with one of the Canaanite leaders um, that they'd captured. They chased him, they caught him, they cut off his thumbs and big toes. Okay, the book end, uh, ends with probably the worst story in the Old Testament, the Levite and his concubine. Uh, The Levite who um, didn't feel comfortable going to a heathen town, felt safer going to a city in Benjamin. And uh, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, the men surrounded the house. They wanted to bring the man out. And so instead they pushed out the concubine and she was raped all night, died. And then he cut her body into 12 pieces and sent one to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, that's the end of the book of Judges. Okay, so it's it's violent from cover to cover. And so the question that we have to ask is, you know, where is God in that story? Story of the Levite and the concubine. And uh, we don't get the answer to that right away, but you have to keep reading. And uh, we'll, I'm going to come to that verse when we get to Hosea because God talks about that story, the Levite and the concubine. But let's give a few other examples in uh, in the book of Judges. Um, Gideon. Here we'll read this through in a little more detail because um, this is kind of an interesting story. The Lord's angel came to Gideon. He's threshing some wheat secretly. He's in hiding so that the Midianites would not see him. The Lord's angel appeared to him there and said, the Lord is with you, brave and mighty men. Uh, he's in hiding. That I kind of find that interesting. So Gideon said to him, if I may ask, sir, why has all this happened to us if the Lord is with us? What happened to all the wonderful things that our fathers told us the Lord used to do? How he brought them out of Egypt? The Lord has abandoned us and left us to the mercy of the Midianites. And here I wish, um, you know, did Gideon have the perspective that we're going through about how God has been faithful? But it's the people who just keep leaving and leaving and leaving. But Gideon doesn't see it that way. He, He can't understand why God is not doing more. So then the Lord ordered him Go with all your great strength and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I myself am sending you. And Gideon replied, But Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh and I'm the least important member of my family. The Lord answered, You can do it because I will help you. You will crush the Midianites as easily as if they were only one man. And Gideon replied, If you are pleased with me, give me some proof that you are really the Lord. Please do not leave until I bring you an offering of food and uh, Gideon went to uh, cook a goat, okay? And uh, it's maybe a little interesting detail, but the angel of the Lord, who I think we could make a case that this was God, said, I will stay until you come back. How long do you think it takes to cook a goat? Okay, you imagine sitting there for how long, waiting for the goat to, to be cooked? Okay, but Gideon went into his house, cooked a young goat, He used a bushel of flour to make bread without any yeast. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them to the Lord's angel. And the angel told him, put the meat and the bread on this rock, pour the broth over them. And you remember that um, he gave Gideon a display. Fire came out of the rock and burned up the meat and the bread. And he tried to reassure Gideon, don't worry. It's all right. Don't be afraid. You'll not die. So Gideon has had his proof, right? Now he's ready to go off and do the things that God has asked him to do. But you remember, that wasn't enough. Gideon said to God, you say that you have desired to use me to rescue Israel. Well, I'm putting some wool on the ground where we thresh the wheat. If in the morning there is dew only on the wool but not on the ground, then I will know that you are going to use me to rescue Israel. So how many times can you demand proof? Of course, we know that that God gave him the evidence. That's exactly what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the wool and wrung out enough dew to fill a bowl with water. And I think maybe what happened is Gideon kind of kicked himself at this point because he thought, you know what, wouldn't the dew naturally go into the wool and maybe it'd be dry on the ground? And so he thought, ah, I should have asked for it the other way around. And so he said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me make one more test with the wool. This time let the wool be dry and the ground be wet. And again, who looks good in this story, Gideon or God who keeps, okay, all right, I'll give it to you. So that night, God did that very thing. The next morning, the wool was dry, but the ground was wet with dew. So, again, who is faithful in this story? And uh, just the surprising things about Gideon. Um, we have a number of uh, good kids' books, at, uh, Bible story books at home, and they just tend to leave out these kinds of stories. Gideon is just a, a superhero, and there's nothing. Uh, but here, Gideon, at a later time in his life, made an idol. From gold that he'd received, he put it in his hometown. All the Israelites abandoned God and went there to worship the idol. It was a trap for Gideon and his family. Gideon had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine. And just you know, interesting details about these people. Uh, I won't go through the story of Jephthah. Do you remember the story of Jephthah? Who made a foolish vow that uh, if God helped him, he would sacrifice the first thing that came out to meet him. Uh, when he went home, thinking you know it's going to be a chicken or something like that, and of course it was his daughter, and he foolishly went through with it, and so Samson, just other people uh, in the book of judges, um, whose dying words and I don't need to you all remember the story of Samson, and all how he messed up again and again, but his dying words here then Samson prayed as he 's holding on to the pillars, Sovereign Lord, please remember me, please God, give me my strength. Just this one more time so that I can have an opportunity to love my enemies as Jesus commanded us to do. Uh, no. So that with this one blow, I can get even with the Philistines for putting out my two eyes. Okay, so we have these characters, but the reason I mention this is uh, Hebrews 11, You know what is that known as? It's the faith chapter. Men and women of great faith. So who belongs in the faith chapter from the Old Testament? Okay, well... Uh, Abraham, yeah, sure, he was a man of faith, uh, despite occasionally not having faith. And so Paul would say, should I go on? There isn't enough time for me to speak of Gideon. It's in the faith chapter. Barak is in Judges, we didn't read that. Samson is in the faith chapter. Jephthah is in the faith chapter. Um, It's just surprising the people that are in there. So um, I've heard someone say, and I kind of like this explanation that uh, God was able to recognize and honor uh, the thread of faith that these individuals had so that later in Jesus he could kind of weave a tapestry um, out of it. But just to recognize a thread of faith these individuals had, again, I think makes God look good, not so much them. So we mentioned the Levite's concubine. And, uh, you know, the Bible does not have a, unfortunately, it'd be nice to have a commentary from God. We hear a story and then we have a, you know God describing, okay, this is what happened and and so on. But oftentimes we do if we just put the whole Bible together. So surprisingly, not until Hosea do we get some commentary on the Levite and the concubine. Okay, um, where it says you got your start in sin at Gabeah. That's where the story happened. That ancient, unspeakable, shocking sin. Okay, that's a good description for that. And you've been at it ever since. So here's God's story. You want to know where I was with the Levite and the concubine? Here we go. When Israel was only a child, I loved him. I called out my son, called him out of Egypt. But when others called him, he ran off and left me. He played at religion with toy gods. Okay, Here's the point. Still, I stuck with him. I led Ephraim, I rescued him from human bondage, but he never acknowledged my help, never admitted that I was the one pulling his wagon, that I lifted him like a baby to my cheek, that I bent down to feed him. Now he wants to go back to Egypt, to go over to Assyria, anything but return to me. My people are hell-bent on leaving me. They pray to God, Baal, for help. He doesn't lift a finger to help them. But how can I give you, how can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I turn you loose, Israel? And again, how does God feel my insides churn in protest? Okay, those are the emotions of God. And just just trying to work with these people. You can read this in any translation. I, I chose the message here just because it's uh, very, very colorful. <clears throat> okay, just moving on a little bit here in the last few minutes from judges to the monarchy. Okay, so the, the people, remember God is their king. God is their ruler. And the people said, no, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And I won't read through it, but but Samuel said, this is a bad idea. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your women to be his wives. He'll take your men to fight in his army. Don't do it. Okay, so Samuel went and listened. The people said, no, we still want a king. Okay, what does God do? Is God um, unchangeable? And it's just surprising. God's response. Well, do what they want and give them a king. God gives in to a bad request. Okay, and he gave them a king. And it's just interesting. Did he give them a bad king? You know, I would be tempted if I were kicked out of some position, and I'm choosing to put someone else in. Well, I'll let them suffer a little bit. I'll give them a really bad ruler, and um, you know, he gave them a man that was head and shoulders above everyone else. And how about this? He gave Saul a new heart. Okay, it would seem like he he tried to get things off on the best start possible. Okay, we'll move on to David. Okay, of course, other things we could say about um, Saul, and and I don't think I need to read a lot of stories about David. But um, I'll just, maybe the first uh, violent story here that Saul had a trick with David. He said, tell David that all I want for the bride price is 100 Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. But what Saul had in mind, it was a trick, was that David would be killed in the fight because remember he's jealous of David. And David was delighted to accept the offer. And of course, you remember what he did. He brought back 200 Philistine foreskins. And that the the kingship of David was very violent. And of course, you remember the story of Bathsheba and Uriah. And uh, what I find amazing about this, I mean, there's a lot to admire about David, if any of you were here when we talked about the life of David. Okay, so not just trashing on David here, but what I find most surprising is how many times in the Bible you read that David was a man after God's own heart, despite all the things that he did. Well, where can I go here just in the last few minutes? Uh, let me just uh, try to get through the, the kingship and maybe we can pick up from here uh, next week. Um, Solomon, you know, Solomon early on, uh, really someone to admire. The Writing the book of Proverbs, uh, Song of Songs, he was a great king for a period of time. What I find fascinating is that God seemed to anticipate the monarchy and tried to put in as many barriers as possible to prevent everything from falling apart. So way back here in De- Deuteronomy, we read... That God said, after you've taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is going to give you and have settled there, then you will decide you need a king. It's a bad idea, but I'm going to give in. You're going to decide you need a king. The king is not to have a large number of horses for his army. He's not to send people to Egypt to buy horses. And of course, what do we read? Solomon had 40,000 stalls for his horses and he did export from Egypt. Did exactly you know, what was written a long time earlier that he shouldn't have done. The king is not to have many wives. This is from Deuteronomy. Okay, not to have many wives. How many wives did Solomon have? 700 plus 300 concubines, a thousand. Because that would make him turn away from the Lord. Isn't that what made Solomon turn away from the Lord? And he's not to make himself rich. Was Solomon rich? And when he, so, oh, this is interesting. When he becomes king, he's to have a copy of the book of God's law and teachings made from the original copy. He is to keep this book near him and read from it all his life. Because if he does that, he'll read not to have a lot of horses, a big army, not to have many wives. Okay? So, again, I think, uh, you know, I, I just admire God in, in writing that. So, or having that inspired. Okay? But we know what Solomon did. That in the eighth month, the eleventh year of Solomon's reign, this is just a little clue that things aren't good. He finished the temple. It t- took him seven years to build the temple. It took him 13 years to build his own palace. Maybe that's a little red flag. And um, that what Solomon did is really unthinkable. He worshipped Astarte, the goddess of Sidon. Moloch, this is the god who they would heat up the hot hands and put the babies inside. Uh, The disgusting god of Ammon, he did all of this. And this is Solomon, wisest man that ever lived. And so, again, how do we see God's faithfulness in this? Uh, I find it remarkable that Ecclesiastes was written after Solomon had done all this. So it's almost like God says, well, why don't you write another book in the Bible? And we have Ecclesiastes. So I'll just uh, finish here with a couple concluding slides because we have the splitting of the kingdom here in 931 with Judah and Israel, uh, the um, Judah and Benjamin and the 10 northern tribes. And for about 200 years until we have the Assyrian captivity, And then these northern tribes are taken away, lost forever in Assyrian captivity. And it's just a small point, but what I find interesting here is that in the line of Judah, we have some faithfulness, some good kings, some good things that were happening. If you wanted to worship God, you came over to Judah. So God is going to send a prophet. Who's he going to send prophets to? He sends them to unfaithful Israel. They get Elijah and Elisha. And who gets the prophet Jonah? What's Nineveh, capital of Assyria? The enemy who's just going to take them off into captivity, which we can understand now why Jonah was so upset to be sent to the enemy. Um, What do you think of a God who sends prophets to the unfaithful and to the enemy? So again, scary God of the Old Testament. Here's the last slide. Ezekiel 36, God speaking. Wherever they went, they gave me a bad name. I suffered much pain over my holy reputation, which the people of Israel blackened in every country they entered. So there are many issues in the Old Testament we didn't even touch on, some difficult ones. But I think we have to say that uh, God has uh, perhaps unfairly been given a bad reputation on the Old Testament, certainly if we don't understand uh, the situation that he was dealing with at the time. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, again, I pray for each person here that as we consider you, as we try to wrap our minds about what you are like, try to understand your character, um, that we uh, perhaps understand better what you've done in human history and put it in the right setting, the right context, and especially as we now move into the New Testament, that we would elevate Jesus as the clear revelation of what you're like. Amen.